Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this podcast, we go back just two days to September 10th, 2019, when Supreme Court Associate Justice Neil Gorsuch came to the Reagan Library to discuss his brand new book, A Republic If You Can Keep It. Justice Gorsuch shares a special connection to the Reagan legacy. In 1993 and 1994, he served as a Supreme Court clerk to Justice Anthony Kennedy, President Reagan's third and final appointment to the High Court. He may have dreamed it at the time, but he certainly did not know that 23 years later, his boss would become his colleague. And he would become the first Supreme Court justice to serve alongside a justice for whom he clerked. During the program, Justice Gorsuch sat down with Reagan Foundation and Institute Board Chairman Fred Ryan to discuss his book, which is part memoir, part history, and part exhortation to the American people to keep our nation strong. Let's listen. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Reagan Library, Justice Neil Gorsuch. I hope I do all right. I think we'll do great. You've been doing great. Thank you, Paul. That was a very generous introduction. Thank you. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch, we're honored and delighted to have you here on the day of publication of your book. Well, I, I'm so happy to be west of the Mississippi, I can't begin to tell you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been uh, something I've been looking forward to, to see this museum. I've never been, and it's been a real treat. Delighted Thank to you to John for a wonderful, wonderful tour. Well, your book opens with an interesting series of events surrounding your trip back to Washington on the occasion of your announcement, of uh, the announcement of your nomination to the Supreme Court. And in many ways, it reminds me of the, the screenplay of an action novel. Can you share a little bit of that with us? Well, to say that it was unexpected doesn't begin to capture uh, how it felt to me and my family. Um, and I've got a few stories to tell, but I'll just sh share one with you. It's kind of illustrative. So not only did we have to sneak out of our hometown in Niwot, Colorado, with 4,000 hardy souls. We had to sneak into the White House. And they took us in through the kitchen. And there's still bits down there, and you probably know this better than I do, Fred, that are, bear the scars from the War of 1812. Bullet holes and, and fire marks where it had been, marble had been burned. And then the president was gracious enough to lend me the use of the Lincoln bedroom as an office for the day. Wow. <laughs> I sat writing my remarks for that evening at a desk where the Gettysburg Address sits. And the president gave my wife, who's an immigrant from England, the use of the queen's bedroom across the hall. And she was allowed one phone call. <laughs> And it had to be to someone back in England. 
Couldn't beat anyone in America. So she called her dad. She said, Dad, you won't believe it. It's going to be Neil. And it's about to happen. And he said, oh, honey, I've stayed up late, very late in England. It was an evening announcement in the East Room. And he said, I've been watching your television programs over here. And uh, there's another fellow, a dear friend of mine, who they've caught on tape driving toward Washington. So it's not going to be Neil. <laughs> In-laws, right? <laughs> and Louis said, well, Dad, I'm in the queen's bedroom. I think it's going to be Neil. <laughs> And she said, and he said, oh, but honey, the other guy could be down the hall. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that's, that's a, a bit of a feel of what it was all like. And, and leaving your, your home in Colorado was also a little bit of a, a covert operation. Is it, it was, and I tell that story in the book. But um, what really followed, and you know, Fred just it was a big change for me and a shock was just a loss of anonymity, right? I, I resided as a private citizen more or less peacefully and happily in Colorado, and all of a sudden, everywhere, I'd be recognized. And I must say, everyone who comes up to me has something nice to say. Great to hear. They may say I voted for the president or I voted against the president, but I wish you well. I love our country, I love our courts, and I love our Constitution. And then, if I'm looking particularly forlorn that day at a line at Starbucks, they might tell me a joke. <laughs> um, but, but one moment that really captured it for me was I, I was taking planes back and forth. I had to meet all those senators. Washington, I didn't know about that. I didn't bring enough clothing. I, <laughs> I had to have a buddy go out and buy me some more shirts. Um, I caught pneumonia on the way back and forth, it was so much, and I'm, I'm feeling sorry for myself and for no good reason, I'm, I was the luckiest guy I know, but we, we were in a plane and a bit of turbulence, and I was seated next to a little girl, probably six years old. She didn't know or care who I was, but she was scared and she wanted to hold someone's hand, and she asked me, may I hold your hand? And I said, of course. And it reminded me of my girls that age. And then the flight smoothed out. And she said, would you like to draw? <laughs> and we spent the next two and a half hours drawing and coloring. <laughs> and I think those were my favorite two and a half hours of the entire process. <laughs> <laughs> the sweet part was, though, that afterwards, after that happy moment of anonymity, her, her mother had been behind us, and I didn't know that. She had recognized me. And she made sure that a thank you note was sent to my office two weeks later. And it was drawn by that little girl. Two stick figures in front of an airplane, <laughs> saying thank you for the fun. That, to me, is what America is about. And that, to me, is what I got to see when I lost my anonymity, when, when God takes something away he often gives you something in return. And that's what I've gotten to see. It's a real privilege. Great. Now, you did, you did a previous book on quite a different subject. 
Um, but could you tell us what inspired you to write this book, and especially uh, the selection of the, the Franklin quote for the title? Well, I resolved during the confirmation process that I wanted to say something about America and the Constitution and the judge's role in it. You know, the confirmation process changed a little bit. Um, back when President Reagan nominated uh, Justice Scalia to the court, my predecessor, the great man smoked a pipe during his hearing <laughs> before the Senate. I don't think we're going to see that again. My old boss, Byron White, for whom I clerked, the only other justice from Colorado, his hearing lasted 15 minutes. That's about how long my hearing lasted to the Tenth Circuit, the Court of Appeals, when I was nominated for the first time. Second time was a little different. <laughs> and I, during that process, I, I came to feel that um, some basic things about our country, we need some reminders. We all do. I do. All of us do. About the wonder of our Constitution, how blessed we are to live under it how all of us have a role to play in our republic. It's, it's not supposed to be run by a small group. It's we the people. Those are the first three words of the Constitution. And I became concerned during the process that some people think that judges are just like politicians, that we wear capes rather than robes. And it's for us to solve every problem. And when we rule a certain way, we must like that person we rule for or dislike that kind of person we rule against. And all of that was just so foreign to my lived experience as a lawyer and as a judge. The lawyers I've admired, the judges I've admired, know that law is not politics and that judges are not supposed to be politicians and that our Constitution is the greatest charter of human liberty the world has ever known and it is a great privilege to do nothing more than uphold it and pass it down to the next generation. That's what I wanted to write about because that's my experience in the law. And I want to offer folks a little peek in my life, into the court, into how a judge thinks, so you can see for yourself how different it is than a politician. Politicians are elected to do your will. Judges are not elected and their job is to exercise what Madison and Hamilton called legal judgment, not will. It's right there in the Federalist Papers, number 78. So that's what I, want to, I wanted to talk about that. Well, and, 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 Fred, and Fred, when I dug into it further, you know, I, I came to learn that, you know, that we, we do have a problem, you know, 30% of Americans, only 30% of Americans about that can name the three branches of government. About a third, another third can name one. And 10% of Americans apparently think that Judith Scheinlein serves on the United States Supreme Court. Now you know her as Judge Judy. <laughs> I respect Judge Judy. I like Judge Judy. But she is not one of my colleagues. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about these things, and, and Fred, and before we go another step further, I want to say, and I, I was joyfully able to do it with two of my wonderful law clerks, and David Feder is here, Janie Nitz, he's not, but let me just brag on them for just 10 seconds. 
All right, please. All right, this young man comes from a family of Mexican immigrants and Holocaust survivors. He saved up his penny attending Cal Poly as an undergrad so he could achieve his dream of attending Harvard Law School, which he did and graduated first in his class. Janie is every bit as special. Her family uh, escaped communism. Czechoslovakia. She came here, managed to go to Harvard, got degrees in statistics and physics, and then racked her way through Harvard Law School as well as David did. Wound up clerking for both me and Sonia Sotomayor. All right? Those are the people for whom I write this book. I'm joyfully able to work with, and that give me such hope for the future. Thank you. Both of them served as your law clerks, and I know you have uh, some simple rules that, are, that you give your law clerks. Could you share those with us? Well, they go to my view about the judge's role in the Constitution, um, and they're really simple. I, I, I tell them, if you do these two things, we're going to get along just fine this year. I don't care what, how you come dressed to work. I don't care more or less what hours you work. So I'd like to see you from time to time. <laughs> but I just have two rules. First, please don't make anything up. Just follow the law as faithfully as you can. That's the judge's job. So help me with that. That's hard enough, figuring out what the law is, what those words on the page mean, what their original meaning was and applying them to new circumstances. That's hard. That's rule number one. And rule number two is when people start yelling, asking you, begging you to make stuff up, telling you you're a terrible person if you don't make stuff up, telling you, worst of all, they might not invite you to their cocktail parties if you don't, <laughs> just refer back to rule number one. <laughs> Thank you. Well, getting into to your book, um, one of the major themes is the, the framers' vision of separated powers and the dangers of blurring those lines of separation. Can you talk a little bit about why that is so important? So we all know our, our First Amendment rights, our Fourth Amendment rights. We know the Bill of Rights, and we know how they contribute to our liberty. But I sometimes wonder if we don't appreciate enough separation of powers and how important it is to our liberty. Um, many countries have wonderful bills of rights. North Korea's is my favorite. <laughs> it promises all the rights you can find in our Bill of Rights, every one of them, and more. Free education, health care, and even, my favorite, a right to relaxation. Now, I don't know how that's working out for the political prisoners in North Korea. But the point is, and Madison knew this when he wrote the Constitution, that those are just promises. He didn't even think we needed a Bill of Rights if we got the Constitution and the structure and separation of powers right. He knew that men are not angels and that the key to your liberty is keeping power separated. 
I am one-ninth of one-third of the federal government, which is one-half of the governments in the country. Right? Divide power. All right. I, I think what happens when we ignore the separation of powers has sometimes been forgotten. And, and I know the separation of powers sounds kind of academic and wonky, and it did to me when I learned high school civics and was bored by it. But as a judge, and I've been a judge for a while now, especially just in the day in and day out cases in the 10th Circuit, I came to see what happens when you blur the lines of the separation of powers in real people's lives. And let me, can I offer a couple examples? Please. All right. So what happens when the legislative power, power to make new laws, is transferred to the executive branch? Right? Well, Madison wanted lawmaking to be really hard. It's supposed to be public process, two houses of, of, of Congress, responsive to different electorates at different times. Right? The whole idea was to make minorities the fulcrum of the legislative process so that they could exert special power to protect themselves. That's how he thought minority rights would be protected, most of all, more than by a list of promises in the Bill of Rights, which he dutifully wrote after everyone made them, but he didn't feel it was necessary. What happens when you take that process and put it into the hands of the executive branch? Well, the executive branch is supposed to apply the law, right, enforce the law, not make the law. And when Madison had in mind for enforcing the law, I said, if it can make it through this difficult process, it should be vigorously enforced. So let's put all the power in one person's hands, right, a president. They decided against management by committee. So what happens when you take out 435 elected representatives and put one person in, in its place? You have a king for four years. And this is, I don't want to exaggerate, but what happens when that, that power is delegated? You have cases like, and I talk about it in the book, small business in Colorado, mom and pop type operation, provides nursing care, in-home nursing care. It's, 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 a, it's a good sized business. They get accused by the federal government of Medicare fraud. Well, that's, that's the end of your business, right? And they're fined $800,000. But then it later turns out, many years later and through litigation, that they complied with all the rules in place at the time. And that the agency was promulgating so many new rules, laws, enforceable criminal sanctions, some of them, that even the agency couldn't keep up. I asked my law clerks, how many of these criminal regulations are out there on the books written by federal executive agencies, responsive only to the president, sometimes not even really responsive to the president at all? And they said that academics stopped counting many years ago when they got to over 300,000. All right, that's one example. What happens when the power to judge is transferred to the executive branch? Well, I have veterans who come before me. I have immigrants who come before me who, when I look at the law, they win. They deserve to win. But we have doctrines that say, no, judges, independent judges, should defer to the interpretation of the law by an executive bureaucrat. So, even though I think the veteran should win, the immigrant should win, the Social Security benefit recipient should win, I have to rule the other way. What happens to your right to an independent judge? What happens to your right to participate in the lawmaking process? It's supposed to be a republic. Thank you. Well, 
speaking of the three branches, do you feel the three branches are, are co-equal? I hope so. Have they, always, have they always consistently maintain the same role, or over time does one become more powerful than the other? Well, I, I think one can question whether, by virtue of a lot of what's happened in our world, a lot more power has devolved to the executive branch than the framers had in mind, right? Just as I've talked about, a lot of the legislative power has moved to the, to, to the executive branch, and a lot of the judicial power has moved to the executive branch. Uh, early in the book, you introduced two important concepts. Uh, one, originalism in the application of the Constitution, and two, textualism in the interpretation of statutes. Can you give us a, kind of a, a summary explanation on what these concepts mean and why they're important? Now we're really getting wonky. <laughs> but yes, this is very important to me. Uh, the term originalism had not been uttered by any of my professors at law school until Justice Scalia showed up one day to give a lecture. And he introduced it to me. And it's not something that I fully embraced or understood even until years later, and I became a judge. And originalism, all it is, it's really a simple idea. Simple idea. The judges should abide the words on the page as they were originally understood at the time they were adopted. That's it. The truth is that judges have always, when it comes to written laws, whether you're talking about statutes or contracts, felt that their role was to apply those words as they originally were meant and understood at the time they were written. And our founders decided on a written constitution. That's what they put down on paper. They put it down on paper. They set down your rights and our obligations on paper. They didn't choose to leave it to evolve. If, they wanted, if you want to change it, they prescribed a process. It's called the amendment process. And that's directed by we the people, not anyone else. So originalism honors, I think, the writtenness of our Constitution. They could have done it otherwise. They knew the English practice of an unwritten Constitution. They rejected that. And I came to see, again, in real cases and real lives, what happens when judges ignore or override the original meaning of the words on the page instead of pursue something they like to call sometimes a living constitution. As a judge, I came to see that when we go that route, your rights are often taken away, the ones that are there on the page to be found. Let me give you a couple of examples. The Sixth Amendment, yeah, yeah you can read it. It says you have a right to a jury trial in criminal cases and a right to confront your accusers. Doesn't take a scientist to figure out what those words mean in most cases. Yet the Supreme Court of the United States in living constitutionalist decisions over the years has said that your right to a jury trial sometimes gives way and a judge instead can try your case. Your rights diminished. And sometimes you don't have a right to confront your accusers. Sometimes a piece of paper written by a police officer can be introduced as a key evidence against you, enough to send a person away for 20 years or more. Okay. Those are some of the rights that get taken away. Korematsu, one of the most infamous decisions of the United States Supreme Court, took a lot of rights away from a whole class of citizens. Said the Japanese-American citizens could be rounded up 
and detained during the, during the duration of hostilities in the Second World War without any due process, without any recognition of the equal protection obligation in our Constitution. Judges thought they were doing something important, vital, keep the peace, help the war effort, living Constitution, evolve it a little bit. They ignored the words on the page. Okay, not only do they take things away, then they put things in there that aren't there. And the most infamous example is Dred Scott. That was the first case in where the United States Supreme Court really radically departed from the original meaning of the Constitution. What do they do there? They said that white persons have the right to own black persons as slaves in the territories of the United States. And that that was guaranteed by the Fifth Amendment's due process clause. Well, scare that clause as long as you want. It ain't there. They put it there. And they thought they were doing something good. I mean, they, were, they thought well-intentioned. They thought they were averting a civil war. But here's a little secret. Judges make pretty rotten politicians. When they start exercising will rather than legal judgment, they got it wrong, of course. And they wound up contributing to a civil war. So for me, originalism is all about recognizing that nine old people in Washington, and I can say that now, I just had a birthday. <laughs> we're never supposed to govern a continental nation of 330 million Americans. That's not what the framers had in mind. It's a republic, and it's for you to keep. Some, some critics of relig originalism say, though, that it cannot accommodate um, important Supreme Court decisions like Brown versus Board of Education, which desegregated American schools. Can you explain how decisions that would be viewed as progressive, like Brown versus Board, could actually reflect an originalist approach? Well, my friend Michael McConnell has written the definitive article on Brown versus Board of Education and why it fits with the original meaning of the Constitution, and I'm a complete subscriber to that. To me, you look at the 14th Amendment, um, it says equal protection of the laws, right? And I have over my fireplace in my office John Marshall Harlan, the first Justice Harlan. There were two. And he was the sole dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson where he recognized that segregation is not consistent with the original meaning of the Constitution. He looks pretty dour. He looks pretty tired and haggard. And I don't doubt he was pretty unpopular back home in Kentucky where he was from. But he knew that segregation is not equal protection of the laws. E the, the meaning of those words on the page, equal protection of laws, may be one of the most radical and important guarantees in our law and in all of human history. And as to the notion that originalism yields conservative results or take us back to horse and buggy days, I say rubbish. <laughs> all right. And, you know, uh, look at the decisions from this last term that I wrote. If you want to grade an originalist, on conservatism. Is it conservative in a, in, a, in a small c sense of conserving the original meaning of the Constitution? You betcha. But does that lead to politically conservative or liberal results? It doesn't have any political valence at all. So for example, your right to have your cell phone data kept private. An originalist in the Carpenter decision might very well be more protective of their rights there than the living constitutionalist, right? 
double jeopardy. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I were the only two dissenters in an important double jeopardy case this year. All right? On originalist grounds. All right? Uh, you're right to confront accusers and to have that jury trial. I wrote a 5-4 decision this year upholding that right. Is that liberal? Is that conservative? I don't know, but I know it's in the Sixth Amendment. So I think the people who've been selling that, that line are, have a bridge they want to sell you to. Okay. More from a Reagan Forum featuring Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to a Reagan Forum featuring Supreme Court Associate Justice Neil Gorsuch. In the book, you discuss the First Amendment um, as well as the spirit of original intent. Why did the founders believe that press freedom was essential to the success of our republic? Well, I think they thought all of those freedoms were essential, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's my role to pick or choose among them. Uh, you may have your favorite uh, right these days, Fred. The first is pretty high on the list. I'll bet it is right now. <laughs> um, but my job is to enforce all your rights and not to pick favorites. And do you think now, 230 years after um, particularly the First Amendment, but our other rights were enacted, do you think the Founders' intent is being realized? I think we're doing a pretty good job of it. I think the Supreme Court of the United States is not a bad institution. I think it's a very fine institution made up of wonderful people. The employees who work there are fantastic. My colleagues are delightful. And the rule of law in this country, I think, is indeed strong. And I know people like to focus on troubles of the day or this or that case, but I think we need sometimes to step back and not just focus on the forest, but on the trees. So when you want to assess the rule of law in this country, let me give you a few facts that you won't hear probably in headlines, let alone clickbait. There are about 50 million lawsuits filed in this country every year, and I'm not counting your speeding tickets. <laughs> We're a pretty litigious bunch, right? We always have been. That's part of the American spirit. In the federal system, 95% of those cases are resolved by the trial court without an appeal. Now, I was a lawyer a long time. I love being a lawyer. You help people solve their problems. And I often had clients who were unhappy with the result. Fair enough. But they accepted it as reasonably just. They had their chance to have their say. They were heard. They were listened to. And they accepted. That's powerful. 5% of the cases would wind up going to an appellate court like my old Court of Appeals, the Tenth Circuit. Right, we sit in panels of three. Can't do anything without at least one other person. Covered 20% of the continental United States, my old court. Two time zones. And incredibly diverse court on any metric you want to pick. 
I served with judges appointed by President Obama all the way back to President Lyndon Baines Johnson. We were able to reach unanimity, the three of us, in those 5% of the cases that got appealed 95% of the time. Okay. You say, well, what about the Supreme Court? And I say, do you realize we hear 70 cases a year? And those are the hardest cases in the country. And those are where the lower courts have disagreed on the underlying legal issue. That's why we take cases, to resolve disagreements so people in California have the same rights and freedoms under our laws as the people in New York and everywhere in between. Okay, that's our job, is to resolve circuit splits, as we call them. Fine. 70 cases out of 50 million. Think about that. Think about the sturdiness, the reliability, the predictability, the fairness of our rule of law. It's incredible. Now let's deal with those 70. All right, fine. There are nine of us, not three anymore, appointed over about 25 or 30 years by five different presidents from all across the country, though the boroughs of New York continue to be well represented. <laughs> all right, fine. Out of those 70 cases, about 40% of them are resolved unanimously. Do you ever hear about that? 40%. Now, do you think that happens magically? Heck no, right? Get nine people to agree on where to go to lunch. <laughs> Yet we managed to reach unanimity through hard work, mutual respect, and a little bit of fun along the way, too. I got some good stories I could share. All right. Well, I'll hold back. <laughs> all right, I'll, tell, I'll share one in a minute. All right, I'll share, I'll share one in a minute. But, so you, people say, fine, what about that? You know, 40% good for you. Well, what about the others? Well, I say, first of all, look at that 40%. That number has been more or less the same since the Second World War. The only thing that's new is that nothing is new. And back then, President Roosevelt had appointed eight of the nine justices. You'd think they do better than we can, huh? <laughs> All right. We're an independent lot, judges. Fine. What about the others, the five fours, people say? I say, all right, let's talk about the five fours. They make up about 25 to 33% of our docket. And that number has been consistent since the Second World War. Nothing to get excited about here. People say, oh, but they always break down on these conservative and liberal lines. Heck no. This last term, there were 10 different combinations of justices in five to four decisions. So that's what I have to say about that. How do we get there? Um, you, want a, you want a fun story? Love to hear about you and all your right. colleagues on the court. Well, all right. I got a couple of good ones. So we've got some, what makes this place work in large part is mutual respect and sometimes fun. We shake hands every time we meet. That's a tradition that goes back to the 19th century. We have lunch together. Not everybody, but there's lunch in the lunchroom together during argument days and conference days. And if you look at our calendar, that's a lot of days. We go out to dinner together like normal people. And we have some fun traditions. And we break some traditions, too, once in a while. Sonia Sotomayor came in one day after New York Yankees had had a particularly good run. And she had a robe on with pinstripes. 
had the New York Yankees emblem on her, on her chest. And we're in the robing room getting ready to walk out. And some of my colleagues are like, is she going to walk? I mean, we're all wondering, is she going to walk out there like that? And we get lined up to go out. And somebody says, Sonia, are you really going to go out there like that? And she says, no, but I was waiting for someone to ask. <laughs> yeah, here's another one. So we have a tradition of, of uh, the junior justice has to have a dinner for the next new justice at the Supreme Court. And Justice Kagan threw just a fabulous dinner for me and Louise. She knew that Louise loves Indian food. And, and Justice Kagan happened to know a great Indian chef. And he came in and cooked us up a storm. It was fantastic. So I had a, I had a tough row to hoe when Justice Kavanaugh came on board. And I've known and admired Justice Kavanaugh for 40 years. And I wanted to throw him a good party. But I also knew that he's a meat and potatoes kind of guy. <laughs> and so the dinner was going to be pretty boring. So I had to do something in the entertainment department. And after dinner, I asked everybody to please get up from the dinner table and come down to the great hall of the Supreme Court of the United States for a little entertainment. And I suspect they were probably thinking there was a string quartet down there. Justice Kavanaugh is a huge baseball fan, and, and the Washington Nationals, their mascots are these presidents, right. and they have giant foam heads. <laughs> They're like 12 feet tall or something. It's crazy. And my wonderful assistant, Jessica, went online and found you can rent them. <laughs> so we hired two of them. And as everyone walked into the great hall of the Supreme Court of the United States, I handed the Chief Justice the checkered flag, and we had a race. <laughs> I wasn't sure how that one was going to go over. <laughs> but I figured it was better to ask for forgiveness than permission on that one. <laughs> Um, I can't resist going back to your, your point about 50 million cases being filed. Does that mean we have too many lawyers in America? Well, actually, one of the things I talk about in the book is access to justice. Um, and I, I do worry when lawyers graduate law school unable to afford their own services. Lawyers are way too expensive, right? It takes way too long to get to trial. When you get there, you don't get a jury. I'm a big believer in juries. And then, just look at how many criminal laws are on the books today. Some professors say, anyone over the age of 18 may be a federal criminal, having done something to break some federal criminal law. So yeah, I worry about access to justice. Two very important subjects that you talk about in the book are, are citizenship and, and civility. And I wanted to ask you a couple questions about those. Um, your book reflects on new citizens and the role they play in strengthening our democracy. That's certainly a value shared by President Reagan. How do your experiences as a judge shape your views on this subject and as the husband of a naturalized citizen? Yeah. Well, I worry when I read that 60% of Americans would fail the naturalization exam my wife had to take. When only 30% of millennials say that they think it's important to live in a democracy. 
Um, and I applaud groups like the presidential libraries and others that are trying to do something about civic understanding. Um, because I don't know how you run this government if you don't know anything about this government and if you don't care. And when I talk to young people who say it's not important to live in a democracy and I'm a citizen of the world, they often tell me. Well, I'm torn on that one, I'll be honest. If, if by that they mean that I recognize and respect the dignity of each person, I'm with you 100%. But if you're telling me there's nothing special about the United States of America, the Constitution you've been bequeathed, our republic, well, I, I'd ask you to think again. I think we've been given an incredibly special gift in our Constitution. Jefferson said that if you expect an ignorant people to be able to maintain a republic, you want something that never was in history and never will be. The truth is republics are fragile things, special things, and they have a checkered record in the court of history. Often they flicker brightly and then dim quickly. Ours is already the longest lived written national constitution in history. We need to make sure that young people, all of us, this isn't a criticism of anyone. It's a call to arms. It's part of my duty too. For all of us to recognize that yes, we have our problems. I'm not here to tell you we don't. But we've also got a great gift. And we all have an obligation to make sure that everyone in this country realizes they have this great gift and that they have a responsibility that comes with that gift. In your book, you note nearly 70% of Americans believe the country has a major civility problem. Putting aside politics of the moment, do you think that the level of civility in America naturally waxes and wanes, or is there something today that's, that causes us particularly to be uncivil, maybe the internet or something like that? Well, I think there are institutions in our country that are incredibly civil, and I think our courts are one of those places. I give you some example about my own court, um, and there's a lot to admire there. Now, are republics supposed to be a little raucous? Yeah, you betcha, right? That's actually what makes us strong, right? The marketplace of ideas, the testing of ideas. All voices can be heard. Right? You only speak freely in a place where you know you have a right to speak freely and that it will be protected and recognized. The raucousness of our republic is in some way a testament to the solidity of our rule of law and the fact we all know we have a First Amendment right to speak. And that's great. Um, but if you're asking me whether we all could do better, all of us, maybe, maybe just a bit, right? Um, social media today, I worry when young people say that they are dissuaded from public service because of the coarseness of our culture and the way we converse with one another. Report that they've been cyberbullied. 25% of parents report they've either moved or thought about moving their kid from school because of it. Yeah, I worry about civility. And 
You know, Washington had a great example for us here, I think. He was forced to write out in hand a hundred and some odd rules of civility that the Jesuits had laid down in 1595. And they're full of good rules. One of them, and some of them are kind of funny, one of them, one of my favorite is, goes something like, do not be so enthusiastic in your speech or come so close to the person with whom you are debating that you bedew the other man's face with your spittle. <laughs> Teenagers would say, say it, don't spray it. <laughs> but there was a time when we taught something called manners. And there was a time when we taught civics. And there was a time when civility wasn't a bad word or something that was considered too timid. I think we have to remember that those with whom we disagree love this country every bit as much as we do. Best rule, I don't know if we need to go back to Washington's rules. Best rule I was ever taught, I was taught by Louisa's grandmother. She said it's pretty simple. She said you're going to have a lot of regrets in your life. Hate to break it to you. You're going to do a lot of things you wish you hadn't. You're going to say things you'll regret. Things you've left unsaid. Things, things you've left undone. But the one thing in life you will never regret is being kind. In your book, uh, you point out the importance of having good men and women uh, pursuing public service. And President Reagan made no secret of his views on what has become the judicial confirmation process, which employs tactics, in his words, quote, better suited for campaigns and elections than for Supreme Court nominations. Do you think the process is working today the way the founders intended? You think I'm gonna touch that one with a 10-foot pole? <laughs> I can try. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not going to touch the confirmation process. Um, I believe in judges sticking to their lane. The confirmation process is assigned to Congress, Article 1. I'm in Article 3 now. Happy to be back home. <laughs> I will say to young people out there, Take a look at people like David and Janie, right? They're not afraid. Don't be afraid. We need you. We need your ideas. We need your participation. We need your help. Somebody has to run the zoo. <laughs> Why not you? And let me tell you, the words don't hurt that much when you know what you're doing is something more important than yourself. And what, what life can you live that's more worthy than carrying on our great Constitution and this wonderful republic? No better way to live a life. Right. In your book, you include tributes to two Reagan appointees the justice you replaced, Antonin Scalia, and the justice you clerked for, Anthony Kennedy. Could you share what you think are, are major elements of their legacies, and will these be enduring legacies for the Supreme Court? 
Sure. I'll start with uh, Justice Kennedy, for whom I clerked um, and later had the opportunity to become his colleague. First time a justice and clerk ever had that opportunity to serve together. Justice Kennedy's legacy for me is what we've been talking about just now. You will not meet a more courteous man who embodies all the professional values that we seek to inculcate in young people in our profession today. He is the model of civility. He's a great teacher of civics. He's a prince of a man, a gentleman. Um, I'll tell you one quick story about him. I got many wonderful ones, but this is, this is the man. So when I became his colleague, of course, he, he said, you know, Neil, I like to work at home. I don't get bothered as much there. And they'll help you. Our IT office will help you set up a home office. I said, that's great. I'm all in. And he said, if, if you ask, they'll even give you a fax machine. <laughs> I had been his law clerk about 25 years earlier, and I remember that fax machine. <laughs> um, at any rate, when I had, wrote my first opinion for the court and circulated, I probably did it after hours, late in the day. And the justice got wind that I had circulated this opinion from his law clerk. And so he told his law clerk to use that fax machine and send it to him because he wanted to read it right then. <laughs> but the machine was broken. So he had the law clerk drive it out to his house. And I quickly got back a handwritten note joining my opinion, first one. First joinder of my first opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States. That's Anthony Kennedy. All right, Justice Scalia. Um, a lion of a man in public life and docile in private. So much to admire there. Fierce originalist, fearless originalist, unapologetic originalist. I'm happy to follow in that mold. But while we agreed on many things, the Justice and I occasionally had our disagreements. Came out fishing with me, fly fishing in Colorado one time. And we had very different approaches there. <laughs> I'd suggest to the justice, now I know this river. I've fished this river my whole life. And if you walk over there and gently unfurl your line behind that rock, you're going to catch a trout. Well, <laughs> he is a son of Queens. He stops over there <laughs> with all the enthusiasm of son of Queens and slaps his line on the water as hard as he can, as if his enthusiasm will make the fish hungrier. <laughs> and then he finishes, Neil, thought you said there was a fish there. <laughs> as indeed there had been. <laughs> I have a wonderful reminder of Justice Scalia in my chambers. So when he passed, Mrs. Scalia was kind enough to give mementos to all the law clerks and family members of things from his office. But there was one thing left over at the end of it. It was this giant elk head that the justice named Leroy <laughs> that he had secured on a hunting trip in Colorado with one of my friends who was one of his former law clerks who's now a lawyer there. And Mrs. Scalia did not want Leroy in her house. <laughs> so she made this former law clerk pay to have it brought back to his house in Colorado. 
And it was sitting in a giant crate in his garage, occupying space he wanted, I'm sure, for a car or other things. And we were having lunch in the summer of 2016. And he says, you know, Neil, if Mr. Trump becomes President Trump, and if he nominates you, I got a gift for you. <laughs> and I honestly, I foolishly discounted both of those things to zero. <laughs> I did not foresee those things happen. And of course, six months later, how the world works. I get a call from Marie, Mrs. Scalia, and she says, we're about to have the first Scalia law clerk reunion since my husband passed. Would you be my date for the night? Of course. And about halfway through dinner, my buddy, with a big grin on his face, <laughs> rolls out a gigantic crate and presents me with Leroy the Elk. <laughs> and I'm very happy to have Leroy watching down over my law clerks because it turns out we share a few things in common. We are both native Coloradans. <laughs> We're both stuck in Washington for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and neither one of us will ever forget Antonin Scalia. Well, speaking of your former boss, Justice Kennedy, I once had the pleasure of receiving a Supreme Court tour from him, and he took me up to the top floor and showed me the basketball court, which is above the, the Supreme Court chambers and is therefore known as the highest court in the land. <laughs> Do you ever sneak away to shoot a few ho hoops during the day? Well, I, I like to ride my bike, and I like to row, I like to ski, um, I like to do a lot of things, run. Occasionally I'll go up there. And I have some happy memories up there. Um, my old boss, Byron White, who now is largely forgotten, but I'd like to remember him a little bit. He's the first justice from Colorado. And uh, there are two special places in the court where I think of him, and that's one of them. You know, he was one of the great athletes of his day. Rhodes Scholar, highest paid NFL football player, leading rusher, I don't think that's going to happen again at the Supreme Court. It'd be neat if it did. Right. <laughs> anyway, he had a mean game of horse. And we would go up there and play horse. Now, when he was younger, he used to elbow the law clerks and really take them down, apparently. But by the time I got there, it was horse. <laughs> and his eye-hand coordination was still so good, he had a shot from the free throw line over the back of his head that he could nail nine times out of ten. And he didn't mind taking your money when, when he did. <laughs> the other place I, I think of him is down on the first floor of the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, we call it the first floor, but it's really kind of a basement bread. It's not a whole lot of windows. And it's where they put you when you're gone, to hang your portrait there. And I very vividly remember one day walking there with Justice White. And he said, so, Justice Gorsuch, he'd like to call his law clerks Justice Smith, Justice Gorsuch. Funny, funny how that seems now. So, Justice Gorsuch, how many of these old dogs do you recognize? 
And I thought about it. And candidly, I answered, Justice, I can probably identify about half of them. And then he said something that really shocked me. He said, me too. <laughs> and then he said something that kind of depressed me at the time. He said, and that's the way it should be. And that's what's going to happen to me too. You know, and as a son of Colorado, I thought that was terrible and unbelievable. <laughs> this guy was not only star NFL player, Rhodes Scholar, he was a war hero. South Pacific. He was one of Jack Kennedy's best friends. He helped desegregate southern schools with Bobby Kennedy. He served on the Supreme Court for 31 years. How could anybody forget Justice White? I walk those hallways now. There are a lot of tourists staring at that portrait who have no idea of who they're looking at. And I think what Justice White was telling me, I now know was joyful. It wasn't depressing. A judge's role is a quiet one. It's upholding the Constitution, not changing it. That's up to you if you want to do that. Upholding the Constitution and passing down, bequeathing this wonderful legacy. And it's living, the joy of living a life in service of something greater than yourself. That's what he was trying to teach me that day. So I think about that a lot when I walk through the court and on the highest court. <laughs> we were just about out of time. I had a couple more questions I wanted to get in. And one is, in your book, you talk about how important your family is to you, including your daughters. In fact, the book is dedicated to your wife and daughters. I'm the father of daughters. I know there are many more here. Um, and here's a question for you. When they have the occasional argument that takes place between siblings, how Teenage do you render... daughters, Fred? <laughs> it happens. Uh, how do you render your judgment? <laughs> Fred, my jurisdiction does not extend that far. <laughs> okay. Um, well, speaking of young people, we have young people here tonight, and I'm sure you are encountered by young people from time to time. And if they say to you, I'm interested in a future legal career, which college major should I choose? Do you have any advice that you offer to them? Oh, I say find something you love. It will, it will lead you where you want to go, right? It's so everyone says this, and it's absolutely true, right? If, if you find something you love to do, work isn't work. You'll never work a day in your life. My grandfathers taught me that. They loved their work. One was a surgeon who had grown up impoverished. And he'd come home after surgery, and he'd get down on his knees, and he'd pray for the patient he had just had surgery on, just done surgery on. He loved his work man of great faith. My other grandfather pulled himself up working on the trolley cars in Denver. Both very humble beginnings. He started a law firm during the Great Depression. It's a great picture of him on what's now Colorado Boulevard, great busy boulevard, on a donkey with his twin brother going to school. Dirt road back then. Great, great men on whose shoulders I stand. And I'd say, do what they did. I followed their footsteps. Find something you love, and everything else will work out just fine. Great advice. One other thing. On that, on that Fred, if we got just a second. Sure, of course. So I used to, this is really corny, but 
this, is, this speaks to young people and I care about it. I used to teach, and I love teaching young people. I miss it. I used to teach professional, legal professionalism and ethics. Now, now that, that is not an oxymoron, I promise. <laughs> and along these lines, to answer your question, at the end of the semester, I'd ask my kids to spend five minutes writing their obituary, how they'd like it to read. Now, they'd snicker at the beginning, and it probably deserved a few of those. But after five minutes, the room was always deadly quiet. They had really come to grips with the question. And then I'd ask a few brave souls to read out what they'd written, and some would. And not one of them ever said, I was the richest lawyer in town, or I had my name on the door, or I brought in the most clients, or I had the fastest car or the biggest house. Every blessed one of them spoke about being useful to their community, to their family, to their friends. Some spoke of their faith. And I asked my students, do me a favor, hold on to that, stick it in your desk drawer. And when you're feeling blue, or you have doubts about where your life is going, take a look at that. Ask yourself how you're doing on those metrics, the ones that really matter. And I follow that same advice myself. There was an inscription on a tombstone in Boston when I was a law student that I found in the old Granary Burial Ground. It's where many of our founding fathers are buried. It's a lawyer's now forgotten. It's a beautiful inscription about being dignified in public life, firm in public life, and mild and affectionate at home. That speaks to me. I keep that in my desk drawer. And I look at it often. A copy of it's in the book. Well, I won't ask you about your obituary, but in closing, <laughs> decades from now, when historians write about the court and your tenure on the court, what do you hope they will say? I expect they will say very little, and that's as it should be. That's not my, again, my, my role is to hand down what I found, and that's work enough. Keeping our Constitution is hard work. We needed great men to found it, and we needed in the Civil War great men to keep it. We need good people who love this country to give their lives over to its service to keep it for the next generation. And if I am forgotten, I'd say I did my job just right. Just Gorsuch, on behalf of all of us here, thank you for this incredible opportunity. Such a treat to be able to spend time with you. And thank you for putting together this incredible book, uh, which even those of us who barely sit and made it through law school find uh, to be quite useful, and I'm sure even more for people who want to get a great standing of the, uh, the Constitution and, and its application today. So thank you for making time. Thank you, Fred. Appreciate it. Justice Gorsuch joins a lineup of Supreme Court justices who have spoken at the Reagan Library in the past, including Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas. In fact, Chief Justice John Roberts, Jr. spoke at the Reagan Library in 2008, his first public speech following his confirmation as Chief Justice of the United States. Thank you for listening. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org events.
For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening. God bless you.